0: People say the same thing about the U.S.'s southern border with Mexico. My answer in both cases is that this is a consequence of the illegality of border crossing. You can make the same exact argument about alcohol prohibition.
1: Hi, welcome to this episode of Ronnie Mead Radio. I'm Joanna Barron. And I'm very happy to introduce today's guest, uh, Professor Ilya Soman. Ilya is a law professor at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School in uh, Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C. Ilya has written several books on law and public policy, including Political Ignorance, Why Smaller Government is Smarter, uh, in which he argues that people's widespread ignorance on the facts underlying public choices is a fatal problem for the effective functioning of democracy. Uh, Ilya has also emerged as one of the most prominent and articulate voices against President Trump, and particularly of late, uh, Trump's immigration restrictions by way of executive orders. So, in this podcast, which was recorded in Calgary, you'll hear uh, Ilya make the case for open borders. Uh, and when Ilya says open borders, he really means nearly full and free movement of people across international borders, as you'll hear. And you'll also hear him respond to concerns regarding security, nationhood, and liberal values that his position raises. We also recorded a video of Ilya debating uh, Candice Malcolm at the University of Calgary, so look out for that soon. Uh, please enjoy this talk with Ilya Soman So I am here in Calgary with Ilya Soman um, Calgary is of course the heartland of Canadian freedom-loving conservatism. So welcome, Ilya. It's your first time here, I believe. Yeah,
0: Not my first time in Canada, but it is my first time in Calgary, definitely.
1: Yes, and you mentioned that you had a thorough grilling at the Canadian border by the border services agent.
0: Yeah, they're very polite, but I've been to about 30 countries and nowhere have I been grilled more thoroughly than in Canada. Uh, probably the three out of the last four times that I've been here. Uh, but it's okay as so long as they let me in in the end.
1: Exactly. So can you say just for some of our listeners, particularly Canadian listeners, I know that you are uh, have a prominent presence in, in the US, um, but our Canadian listeners may not be as familiar with you and your work, so can you just say a bit about who you are and what you do um, and sort of your upbringing? I know, for example, that you were born in the USSR, and I'm curious how that has influenced your thought.
0: Yeah. So uh, I'm a law professor at George Mason University in Virginia near Washington, DC. I study constitutional law and property law, and perhaps most relevant to today's discussion, I also do a lot of work on the nature of democracy and also on voting with your feet, both people deciding where they want to live within a country based on a local or a provincial government and how they see that, and also people migrating internationally as well. Uh, and On much of my work, I write about how it's desirable to limit and decentralize the power of government in a variety of ways, both internally and with respect to the issue that we may be spending some of our time on today, the issue of immigration. Uh, And I've written several books related to these issues, I have one book called Democracy and Political Ignorance, Why Smaller Government is Smarter, which discusses why people make better decisions usually when they vote with their feet than when they vote at the ballot box. And I'm currently working on a new book that is tentatively entitled Free to Move, Foot Voting and Political Freedom, which makes the case both for expanding opportunities for people to vote with their feet within countries and also internationally. Uh, Finally, you asked me about my background. I was uh, born in the then Soviet Union and immigrated to the US when I was six years old.
1: And so, I, how did you become sort of, sort of such a strident libertarian? And we're going to get into this, but I've been reading some of your scholarship on open borders and immigration. And I mean, you say open borders, you really mean open borders. You really are quite a sort of forceful libertarian. So, how did you come around to the, yeah. that view?
0: Well, I wouldn't necessarily use the word strident, but I certainly am both libertarian and for open borders. Uh, I think, in terms of how I became a libertarian in general, that's a You know, somewhat long and complicated story, but obviously does have to do in part with being from the Soviet Union and seeing the experience of oppressive and overgrown government. uh, Certainly makes you suspicious of government. In terms of open borders, I think the freedom to migrate internationally is a natural extension of freedom generally, uh, and it makes an enormous difference in people's lives when they have the ability to do it. Certainly in my life, the opportunity to live in the U.S. as opposed to in the Soviet Union or even post-Soviet Russia, which is less bad than the Soviet Union, but still pretty awful, but also for millions of other people who came into U.S., Canada, other relatively free societies, Uh, their lives would have been in many cases truly horrible if they had not been able to do that both in terms of freedom and also in terms of their happiness and productivity and also uh, in terms of the happiness and productivity of native-born people as well in those societies they also benefit from freer migration because their freedom is not restricted. They can then interact with immigrants who they, uh, in social and economic interactions, and also they benefit from the enormous wealth that free migration creates. Economists estimate that if we had free migration throughout the world, uh, we could double world GDP. That's not a misstatement. That's an actual standard estimate of the effect. There's nothing else that we could do in economic policy that we know of that would produce so much additional wealth as that.
1: Okay, so you've talked about the sort of the, the guiding maxim of your position on open borders, but just to be clear, do you think that we shouldn't have borders at all? Do you think there should be any restrictions on migration? And if so, what would they look like? So and we, how would you justify? So
0: we that? certainly should have borders because borders serve many functions other than restricting migration. They serve to delineate the spheres of authority of governments. They serve to delineate what it means to go to war and many other functions as well. Uh, what we should not have is the kind of massive system of migration restrictions that currently exists in the world, where where people are allowed to live and how much freedom they have is solely determined or overwhelmingly determined by a morally arbitrary characteristic, namely, where they happen to be born. Uh, And it's really just another way of uh, discriminating against people based on their choice of parents. We don't allow that with respect to race uh, or ethnicity. where you're born with respect to a line and a map is a similar thing. Uh, So I think at the very least, just as we have a strong presumption against racial or ethnic discrimination in government policy, so we should have a strong presumption against discrimination with respect to freedom of movement based on where you happen to be born. Now there can be some situations where it might be defensible to impose restrictions on freedom of movement completely irrespective of where you were born. For instance, if you have a deadly contagious disease and the only way to stop that spread of that disease is to quarantine you. So I don't believe in a completely absolute freedom of movement or really, I don't believe in any completely absolute right to do almost anything. What I would say is that freedom of movement, like freedom of speech, freedom of religion and so forth, these are very important fundamental rights. And if we're going to restrict them, we should have a very compelling reason for doing so, namely some great good that actually will be achieved and that can't be achieved by less draconian measures.
1: So tonight, uh, shortly after, uh, we wrap up here, we're going up to the University of Calgary for you to debate my friend Candace Malcolm um, on open borders and immigration. Um, but essentially, I suspect that what she's going to say is there is a very good rationale for clamping down on migration and for looking closely at people, and that rationale is, of course, security. People f- come from countries where, first of all, Islamism, for example, is rampant, and you know there have been serious security concerns that have been occasioned by free-flowing migration, for example, in Europe. Um, so how would you respond to that?
0: I would respond to it in two ways. First, the problem is massively overblown. In the United States, the chance of the average American being killed by an immigrant terrorist of any kind, whether Islamic or otherwise, that's several times less than his chance of being struck by lightning and killed. So the risk is already extremely low. Even if we increase immigration, that risk, say, increases threefold, it would still be very low. Second, If we keep out immigrants specifically from Muslim countries, we actually play into the hands of our enemies. Uh, Donald Trump is not the only person who wants to prevent Muslim immigrants from going to the West. ISIS and their leaders feel exactly the same way. They very much oppose Muslim immigration to the West for a couple of reasons. One is, they worry that the Muslims will be corrupted by our liberal values. And second, if people leave the territories they rule and go to the West, that means there's fewer people under their control. And obviously, if we take a harsh line against Muslim immigrants, we also alienate Muslim opinion in many parts of the world, and that's grist for the the mill of radicalism. So my response is that the risk as well and if we try to lower it by imposing immigration restrictions, we actually play into the hands of our enemies. Moreover, If we take all of the vast resources or some of them that are currently spent on rounding up, deporting and preventing immigrants from coming in, who all they want to do is find jobs and opportunity and instead put those resources into law enforcement or anti-terrorism or other more productive endeavors, we can actually do a lot more to lower overall risks of violence to people in the U.S. and in Canada and elsewhere than we could by imposing immigration restrictions. I would add, by the way, that the risk of death by an immigrant terrorist from what I can see in Canada maybe even lower than in the U.S. that we don't have as comprehensive data from Canada, I think.
1: Yes, and, and per capita, higher amounts of immigration into Canada, yeah. certainly in terms of um, political asylum. Yeah. yeah, but
0: even so, but in Canada, as I understand it, there has been even less actual terrorism per capita by immigrants than uh, in the U.S., and the U.S. rate is already very low. Well.
1: Right. Right. Well, I guess it's a double-edged sword. The fact that if you think about, you know, prominent recent terrorist attacks in the U.S., like um, the Boston Marathon massacre or the Orlando nightclub shooting, on the one hand, it goes against your point. It doesn't. That you know that terrorists um, that terrorists do do act sort of inspired by ISIS and groups like that in the West. On the other hand both of those incidents that I just named, the Tsarnaev brothers um, and the Orlando nightclub attackers were both born in the United States and became radicalized in the United States, so it wouldn't be an immigration problem. Yeah, so
0: the Orlando terrorist was indeed uh, born in the US. I think uh, the two brothers who were involved in the Boston Marathon attack I believe were actually may have been born in Chechnya. I would have had to check that, but but they clearly grew up. In they, they grew up. They, they came here as small children, or to the U.S. as small children. Uh, again, if the goal is to reduce the risk of terrorism to zero, then you know we can't. We probably can't achieve that. If the goal is to reduce it to a very low level, it's already at a very low level, and we can reduce it further by taking measures more intelligent than having draconian immigration restrictions.
1: Okay, so let's let's speak about this more specifically. You wrote extensively um, and forcefully uh, in the Washington Post and other places opposing Trump's January of this year executive order um, imposing a travel ban on individuals from certain um, countries, um, and you also are opposed to the revised travel ban. Uh, so, can you speak about your your reasons for being opposed both to the original executive order and the revised one?
0: Yeah. So I have. Two reasons, for three reasons really, for opposition to uh, both orders I think apply to both of them. One is the general principle of freedom of movement that I mentioned before. What we have here are people fleeing horrible tyranny and oppression, and uh, it's right and just to give them refuge and enable them to live in a freer situation. It benefits them. It also benefits us because most uh, Middle Eastern immigrants in the U.S. Uh, have actually come to be fairly productive and successful citizens. Uh, secondly, it actually benefits us in the war on terror uh, because for the reason I mentioned earlier. ISIS actually does not want us to take in these people. ISIS was actually cheering loudly when Trump's first order came out because they said, yes, uh, this means more people will stay with us, people will be antagonistic to the U.S. Among other things, Trump's original order would even have prevented Syrians and Iraqis from coming to the U.S., who had actually cooperated with U.S. and other international forces fighting the war on terror. Uh, and of course, if those people know that the, or think that the U.S. is going to stab them in the back and is not going to give them refuge, they're less likely to cooperate with us in the future. The revised order is a little bit better on this because the revised order says, well, you know, contour officials at their discretion might let these people in. Still, if I were an Iraqi or a Syrian thinking about aiding the U.S., I would not bet my life on a discretionary decision of some bureaucrat. Uh, I might, uh, you know, be worried about doing that. Uh, And then finally, uh, both legally and morally, it's pretty obvious that both the original order and the second one was motivated by religious prejudice. Just listen to what Trump himself said during the presidential campaign and listen to uh, his advisor, Rudy Giuliani, who played a big role in writing the. Uh, order. He said civically in a TV interview, we started out with a Muslim ban, but then we said let's write in a way to make it legal. So this is a very obvious and blatant case of pretextual discrimination that they knew that in order that, in, that openly said we will forbid Muslims to come in, that would probably be struck down by courts.
1: Right, but it does sort of, it does single out several countries which are not necessarily the majority of Muslim population countries. Yeah, so, so
0: each one of those countries has at least a nine 90 percent Muslim population, asylum is even as high as 98 or 99 percent, it is not correct to say that you can't discriminate against a group unless you target every single member of the group. Uh, For example, uh, in the United States for many decades, in many states we had Uh, literacy tests and poll taxes which were intended to keep blacks from voting. They didn't keep every single black person from voting uh, but nonetheless they clearly targeted blacks and that was the motive. So similarly here while it is originally seven countries and now six and therefore not the entire Muslim world it's pretty obvious that those countries were chosen because they're majority Muslim and also because the selection of them was driven by the attempt to make quote unquote legal the Uh, Muslim ban that Trump advocated during the campaign.
1: Uh, And yet the revised travel ban does reflect some of the concerns that were brought out in the original court decisions that found the the original executive order to be unconstitutional. So in light of that, do you think the courts will show deference to the revised ban? It does, you know, for example, respond to the concerns about green card holders, which seem to have an
0: Yeah, like yeah. The, the new order is less bad than the original one. I'm, will, I'm willing to concede that. It does deal with some of the issues that were raised in the original cases that were not about religious discrimination, but rather about the due process rights of green card holders and visa holders uh, and the like. Uh, So it does address that uh, to some degree, but on the other hand, it doesn't really address the religious discrimination issue. And the first two trial court decisions uh, have actually both ruled against the revised order on the basis of religious discrimination. What will happen in the appellate courts? I think it could go either way. There's a, you know, there's going to be an ongoing legal battle over this, but at the very least those observers who said, Oh, the second order is just now completely immunized from legal problems. That claim was at the very least highly premature. Uh, I would add also that even with respect to visa holders, the new order creates problems in that there are people here who are on a visa, but that if they leave to go back even for a brief visit to one of these countries, they will no longer be able to re-enter without getting a new visa, which the new order would forbid them to get for at least 90 days. Uh, and you might say, well, 90 days, that's not such a big deal, but for people who have urgent business or medical problems or other sorts of issues, it is a big deal.
1: Okay, so to, so to bring it to a sort of to a, a specifically Canadian issue, and I'm not sure how much of this you're aware of, but in Canada, uh, the Canada and the U.S. have a treaty called the Safe Third Party Agreement, which essentially says any refugees, whether they be um, asylum seekers or what have you, migrants who arrive in either Canada or the U.S. must seek asylum in the first country where they arrive. Um, if you land in the U.S., you have to seek asylum. You have to go through the process in the United States. You can't just, you know, hop over the Canadian border, and vice versa. Now, in the wake of Trump's executive orders, certain political parties in Canada, the New Democratic Party, which is the center-left party, um, and civil libertarians, have called for suspending this. This. Uh, this agreement and their argument is that the U.S. is not really a safe country anymore because of it, the harsh cl- and anti-immigrant climate in the Trump era. Um, and they, the response to that on the right is, this is absurd. You're not a refugee if you're coming from the United States. It, to say so just dilutes the meaning of the term refugee. So any, any views on that? Is it that bad in the US yes. that we, we need to- So I would on? need
0: to know more about exactly what criteria under the Canadian law indicate what counts as a safe country. Uh, if Is it safe in the sense of the refugees don't face physical violence, or is it safe in the sense that the refugees are likely to be granted asylum in the US, or is it safe in some other sense?
1: Well, right, I think it, the original meaning of the statute does specify, you know, physical violence. Um, On the other hand, um, the argument is these people are coming from places where they are fleeing real physical violence and they have very little probability of ever gaining citizenship or even permanent residency in the United States in the current administration.
0: Uh, So one of the things in Trump's executive order, which unfortunately is much harder to challenge legally, is that he has reduced from 110,000 to 50,000 the total target for Uh, all refugees regardless of whether they're from these six countries or not in a given year. So that does make it harder for anyone Uh, to get refugee status or asylum status think in the U.S., and more generally I think Trump and his administration have instructed lower level officials to be tougher on these applications, so I think it is likely that refugees, particularly from Muslim countries, but even from other countries as well, would be somewhat less likely to get refuge in the U.S. now, than they would have been under previous administrations, both Democratic and Republican. How much less likely, I don't think we know that yet because it's only been a a few weeks, but I think Trump is serious about this anti-immigration agenda, and you know he's going to, he and his minions, some of whom are really awful, uh, will do all they can to uh, to achieve this goal. Uh, so I don't think asylum seekers in the U.S. face significantly greater risks of physical violence, than in the past there are obviously hate crimes directed at some of them, but they're relatively rare. Uh, and I, we don't even have data indicating they've necessarily become more common in recent months than before. But it is true that it is likely harder for refugees to gain asylum in the U.S. Uh, than it might have been previously. Uh, and you know how that interacts with the Canadian law I don't have an expert opinion on, but I do think that regardless of the state of U.S. law. I think Canada has done well to take in a variety of immigrants and refugees and it would do well to continue to expand that in the future, uh, whether the U.S. adopts horrible policies or not.
1: Yeah, well, the facts on the ground currently are difficult because we do know that in the last few months, the number of illegal border crossings from the U.S. into Canada have just skyrocketed, which is extremely dangerous. You have people literally running, you know, across you know snowy woods, and I think a few people have died because they know that there is a loophole that if you do make it to Canadian soil, your your application will be considered; yeah. you won't know, just be turned around. So it creates these perverse incentives. You know, risk your life by running in the Canadian wilderness in the middle of yeah. the night.
0: So people say the same thing about the U.S.'s southern border with Mexico. My answer in both cases is that this is a consequence of the illegality of border crossing. You can make the same exact argument about alcohol prohibition, uh, that when, when we had alcohol prohibition in the U.S., and as I understand it in some Canadian provinces, including Alberta as well, it was very risky to be involved in the alcohol trade because you had to do things in secret and even cross the you know cold forest at night or whatever so the way to solve that problem was through the legalization of alcohol and similarly if you legalize border crossing people will no longer be incentivized to do it in a risky way they could do it in a safe way uh, and that would be true both for our southern border with Mexico and also for your border with the United States. Uh, that if people could cross legally and if border crossing were presumptively legal as opposed to being presumptively illegal, then we could take care of this problem of uh, people doing it in risky ways.
1: Okay. Well, it's not really deniable that the uh, political elites, such as yourself in Europe and the United States tend to be generally more pro-open borders, pro-migration. Um, for moral, economic, political reasons, than the general population. Um, and I suspect as a scholar of political ignorance, or even an engineer of the theory of political <laughs> ignorance, you have some views about that. And first of all, I'd love to hear you relate those two areas of your interest. So I
0: think this is the first time that I've been complimented in such a way as to be considered a member of the political. elite. <laughs> the amount of political power I have is pretty minuscule, uh, but I do take the point that do true.
1: a regular soapbox in the Washington Post. Okay, fair
0: enough. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that's quite enough to be a member of the political elite. It does give me a bit more influence than the average person has, maybe even 50 or 100 times more than the average person, but that's still very little in a political system as large as the U.S., but be that as it may, I do take the point that sort of highly educated people on average are more pro-immigration than lesser educated or less knowledgeable people, and I do think this has to do with political ignorance. If you look at data, on determinants of opposition to immigration. First of all, one big determinant is actually greatly overestimating the percentage of immigrants who already are in in a given country. Uh, It tends to be overestimated several fold. Uh, Secondly, it's often due to ignorance about such things as how many immigrants are on welfare, uh, their crime rate and so forth. For instance, in the U.S., about 50 percent of the public and over 70 percent of Republicans think that immigration increases the crime rate, whereas in reality it has the opposite effect. Immigrants, including illegal immigrants, have a much lower crime rate than native-born Americans do. This, by the way, is true in Canada as well. Uh, And much of the public doesn't know that. Uh, This is one of several facts that highly educated people are more likely to know for a variety of reasons, and that affects their attitudes. Now I'm not saying Uh, that the fact that more knowledgeable people tend to support more immigration by itself proves that it's a good idea. More knowledgeable people can be wrong and sometimes are, but on average I think they're less likely to be wrong than the less knowledgeable. And so it is not my view that if everybody was highly knowledgeable about immigration they would all be as open borders as I am, most of them would not be, but they would be much more open to immigration than on average they are now.
1: Okay, so so to push back, there are political consequences to strong pro-immigration policies, whether it be for ignorance or whatever. Um, And David Frum, who's been, I think, one of the most nuanced sort of restrictionist commentators, um, had a great quote recently at The Atlantic. He said, when liberals insist that only fascists will defend borders, then voters will hire fascists to do the job that liberals won't do. Um, And the implication is that there is a certain, you know, uh, mass concern about the effects of immigration, for example, if you're a white working class person in the United States and you've seen, um, you've seen your, your working opportunities be eroded by the presence of illegal Mexican immigrants or things like that, and you all you hear are liberal elites saying we need to be pro-open borders, free full flows of m- migration, then you have a backlash and you end up with something like Donald Trump, ugly as it is.
0: Yeah so I would respond to that quote on several levels It's actually wrong on multiple levels he packs in a lot of wrongness in a very short sentence. The first uh, form of wrongness is the conflation of defense with stopping peaceful migration. This is a rhetorical move that is often made but it's wrong just as we it wouldn't make sense to say you're defending Alberta by preventing migration from Ontario or Quebec, as long as it's peaceful. So similarly, we're not defending the US uh, or our border by preventing peaceful migration from Mexico or anywhere else. The conflation of peaceful movement with a military threat is a clever rhetorical move, but it's deeply wrong, uh, and it shouldn't be allowed to pass by. Secondly, uh, yes, it's true that there is this backlash, but the backlash, as as I noted before, to a large extent due to ignorance, and to a blaming on immigration economic problems that in most cases are caused by other factors. For instance, you mentioned the issue of white working class people and wages Uh, It is actually very questionable whether immigration has lowered working class wages at all, much less by a large amount. There is some evidence that it has lowered the wages of high school dropouts in the U.S. For everybody above high school, it seems like the net economic impact of immigration is positive, especially when you throw in the uh, point that immigrants produce a lot, they start businesses at a higher rate than native-born Americans, they actually provide opportunities for the working class. Uh, to the extent that you think there is some segment of the working class that is disadvantaged, I think one of two answers can be given. One is, it may be that we should give them the advice that they should do some of the same things that the immigrants are doing, which is to move towards greater opportunity uh, in other parts of the country, and there are things we can do to make that more feasible. The other thing we can do, if we really were put to it, is say, look, immigration is creating a vast amount of new wealth. We can tap some of it and redistribute it to uh, such groups as we think are unduly disadvantaged. So
1: basically trickle-down economics? No, it it,
0: it wouldn't be trickle-down. it it could be a direct wage subsidy. Uh, In the U.S. we have the Earned Income Tax Credit which already subsidizes the wages of lower income people. You could, if you wanted to, make that larger and fund it in part through uh, taxes on uh, employers that hire recent immigrant labor. So it's very
1: interventionist yeah. for a libertarian. So, so this
0: is uh, I, I'm not saying this is the ideal policy, I'm just saying it's much less interventionist than having a massive draconian immigration restrictions. And also it's much better for the economy. And in effect, our current system destroys massive amounts of wealth. This system would enable that wealth to be created uh, and At the margin, some would be redistributed. You could argue whether the redistribution is a good idea or not, but it's a less bad idea uh, than simply destroying vast amounts of wealth in the first place so that nobody at all would get to enjoy it.
1: So just another question about your open borders position. Um, Do you think that you are avoiding to some extent what some people have called, quote unquote, the reality of nationhood? In other words, that many people who seek to immigrate to Canada and to the United States are coming from places that don't have a culture of equal rights, don't have a culture of gender equality, don't even have a culture of separation between church and state. Um, And if you import too many of them, the sort of the, the civic culture, the civic culture itself inevitably at some point becomes transformed.
0: Yeah. So it's a reasonable concern. I have no desire to avoid it, but I think it can be dealt with by means West draconian immigration restrictions, at least in most cases. Uh, first of all, You can avoid much potential political damage simply by having restrictions of the kind that already exist on how long it takes you to become a citizen with voting rights. In the US, you already have to wait five years to become a citizen. You have to pass an English test and you have to pass a civics test that most native-born Americans would fail. My understanding is that Canada has a a relatively similar system. If you thought it was enough of a problem, uh, you could Make f- turn to five years into eight or ten years, you can make the test harder, uh, and so forth. Uh, so the right to move is distinguishable from the right to be a citizen and to vote. Secondly, uh, when you look at data in the U.S., and I think actually in Canada as well, the political views of immigrants are actually not nearly as far apart from those of natives as, uh, as often imagined, and they get closer in the second and third generations. Uh, So if immigrants were given the opportunity to come into the society, And particularly if there is a relatively flexible labor market where they can get jobs, uh, that leads to assimilation to more liberal values, because in a straight-up competition, liberal values actually generally do much better than illiberal ones, Uh, particularly in a society that already has established liberal institutions. This is actually exactly what ISIS is afraid of. Now in Europe, this hasn't worked in some cases as well as it should, in part because they have very closed labor markets, so a lot of recent immigrants, and by the way, even many young Native born citizens, uh, they have trouble entering the labor market. That impedes linguistic learning, assimilation, and so forth. But even if France or Germany or these other countries were to completely ban all immigration, they would still need to deal with their labor market problems because uh, particularly in the case of France, they have double-digit unemployment even among young natives, so they need to fix that problem regardless of immigration. Uh, And uh, I would add also uh, that uh, again, if you wanted to uh, deal with this in a reasonable way, uh, what you would do is strengthen incentives for people to uh, adopt good values rather than try to keep them out in the first place. Uh, and there's many things that we can do with that and we're actually, at least in the U.S. and Canada, doing pretty well already. If you look at the surveys on the attitudes of Uh, Muslims in the U.S. uh, close to half of them even support same-sex marriage. It's a slightly lower rate than native-born Americans but still if you support same-sex marriage that probably means you're not a radical Islamist or even a conservative Muslim of uh, any kind Uh, and there's a lot of other metrics on which uh, 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 American Muslims score reasonably well on that Uh, and uh, you know that's because we do have relatively flexible labor markets we do allow people to integrate quickly, and if we continue that, and if we don't adopt a closed-minded attitude, as I fear to some degree we might with the rise of Trump and similar movements, we can enjoy comparable and even greater success, and the same thing I think can be true for Canada, for Western Europe, and other places.
1: Yeah, there was an interesting example in Ontario last year where a coalition of uh, Chinese parents lobbied against the Ontario government for introducing a sex ed curriculum which includes Included discussions of same-sex relationships, and they were strongly opposed to their kids being taught about this, and I thought it was sort of it was uh, it, it, I was It was interesting because on the one hand I didn't agree with their position But on the other hand the fact that they were so civically engaged seems like a very sure. good thing
0: So I'm not arguing that immigrants will always have the same attitudes as natives I'm not even suggesting immigrants won't have lots of foolish and misguided political views. I wrote an entire book about political ignorance and the dynamics of it. Immigrants are not immune to this problem. The issue to ask is not, are immigrants people with wonderful political attitudes? The issue is, how do they compare with natives and what will be the impact of it? And in general, at least in the US and Canada, difference is not that great. Uh, and where there is a difference, sometimes the immigrants on some issues might actually have better views than natives do, like on free trade, for example. Uh, so that uh, I would also note that many studies show that recent immigrants in the U.S. and I suspect this is true in Canada as well, though I haven't seen the study. Uh, recent immigrants just have generally less impact on the political system than natives do. They're less likely to vote, less likely to make financial contributions to candidates less likely to participate in almost any metric that we, can, uh, that we have for perfectly understandable reasons. And in one sense, you might say this is a bad thing. Uh, it may prevent immigrants from improving the political system, but if your worry is that immigrants are going to change policy for the worse, you would actually stand up and cheer at data like that because that makes it far less likely that they will, at least not until they've been in the country for many years and have taken on more of the uh, values of the existing system
1: okay so um you mentioned um at the beginning of our conversation that you have a new book that you're about to that you're about to start writing or propose can you talk about what's next for you sure sure the
0: book is called free to move foot voting and political freedom uh and it makes the case for enhancing opportunities for people to vote with their feet
1: so just to be clear what do you mean by vote
0: with your feet i'm about to get
1: colloquially yeah,
0: it, it, it means more or less the same thing as uh, what it means colloquially within a country you can vote with your feet by choosing what local or regional government you want to live under. Sometimes you can vote with your feet in the private sector, choosing to live in a private planned community, choosing to join certain organizations or buy products in the market. And of course immigrants vote with their feet when they move from one country to another. Uh, and In this book I'm going to suggest that we should expand opportunities, both internal and international, uh, for people to vote with their feet, both because it would massively increase human freedom and welfare and also because it's often a better way to have true political freedom uh, than conventional ballot box voting is. Uh, Political freedom in the sense of having a meaningful choice over what kinds of government policies you want to live under.
1: So what would that look like, enhancing opportunities for foot-based voting? Like what are some of the specific proposals? So
0: one idea would be to decentralize power more within nations to to the regional rather than the national level or to the local level. That would enable people to have a wider range of choice uh, in different communities with different policies, and also it would reduce moving costs uh, because it's cheaper to move from one province to another, let's say, than from one nation to another and cheaper still to move from one, community within a province another community within the same province uh, and so forth. Uh, So more decentralization, also we can break down some artificial barriers that governments have set up that make foot voting more difficult, for example in the U.S. and I think in some places in Canada as well. There are restrictive zoning rules which artificially drive up the cost of housing, particularly for the poor. Uh, If that was eliminated or reduced, uh, poor people would find it easier to move to opportunity. That would do much more to help the white working class, by the way, than immigration restrictions would. Uh, And then also in some countries, you have straight up barriers to migration between regions like in China and India and elsewhere, which could be broken down. And of course, at the international level, we can reduce immigration restrictions, uh, and that would have even larger gains than promoting foot voting internally would.
1: So last question, what is a thinker or a book that has had an indelible influence on your your work and your thought?
0: Quite a few people, but uh, I would name a couple that are particularly relevant. One is Mansur Olson, the developer of collective action theory and how often we make bad decisions when or, or, or have problems when uh, we make decisions where your voice is just one of a large number of people who have an impact and that certainly applies to voting but also to some other things. Uh, the, another might be Hayek with his work on uh, the importance of knowledge and how it's better uh, dealt with through decentralized systems and markets and civil society than through top-down government planning and I think that applies in many areas including in immigration which Uh, Hayek didn't specifically write about very much, but where I think his insights certainly apply.
1: Certainly. Well, tune in to see see Ilya taken to task, and if anybody can possibly overcome his very well-articulated reasons for being pro-open borders. Thank you so much, Ilya. Thank you. So that's all for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. Let me know what you think. You can follow me on Twitter at J-O-B-E-A-R-O-N, Joe Barron, or Runnymede at Runnymede Sock, Runnymede S-O-C. You can also visit our website at runningmeadsociety.ca to see what we've been up to and what we have planned, and to donate if you wish to support the Running Mead Society and or Runnymede Radio. Thanks again. See you next time.